des débats passionnés depuis son adoption en 1900. It is in some quarters a well-established fact that investment in infrastructure requires considerable resourcing. Often the question is asked, where will the money come from? Much faith has certainly been placed in new private financing models from impact investment to blended finance to development impact bonds, venture capital and private equity and many many other such instruments. Many argue that these approaches are game changers. There are however critical voices that have also emerged that encourage much greater scrutiny of some of the instruments associated with these asset classes and their implications for the developing world. One of these has been the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, UNCTAD as it's often called, was founded in 1964 to promote the trade-related interests of countries in the developing world, and they argue that these instruments are little more than new mechanisms for financial accumulation with significant distributional consequences of course for many in the developing world in this episode of our apport podcast we ask some difficult questions on how we finance our infrastructure needs and the impacts that this has on our economies today and tomorrow how much should african countries rely on such instruments as aside from building their own development banks developing their own domestic capital markets to issue bonds for infrastructure and reindustrialization our discussion in this episode considers these themes in the context of developments such as the africa continental free trade area and the imperatives of a just energy transition and overcoming energy apartheid I'm joined today by two guests. My name is Sonia Palate. I am an economist and researcher at the Institute for Economic Justice. Uh so my name is Penelope Hawkins. I work as a senior economist um in the division of globalization and development strategies at UNCTAD. Penelope Hawkins suggests that blended financing brings together public and private entities and it can have adverse social impacts. it can turn public resources into a mechanism that serves to de-risk and absorb risks for global financial flows pull out a few points around blended finance which i know is very um considered really fantastic because it's the mechanism by which we're going to grow um you know uh, attract capital and we're going to meet the the trillions of dollars of need that we need to um achieve the sustainable development goals you know we're going to achieve that through blended finance and the logic is that for every you know dollar that we use to de-risk blended finance 7 dollars will flow in and the reality is not that in fact for every dollar that's invested to support finance for for less developed countries in fact less than 70 cents flows in so if that's the if that's the equation then we're kidding ourselves um we've also seen very many examples of where even in countries that we consider developed and sometimes that we see that we should take case studies from they've had a disastrous experience with public um private sector partnerships if you have a look 
at those at the history where in fact you know billions of pounds have been paid for something that wasn't delivered or that was delivered inadequately and if the government itself funded it actually the outcome would have been better so it seems to me that you know we we get caught in a narrative where everybody for so long has told us everything to do with the government is bad everything to do with the private sector is good um we need to pull back from that clearly that's not the reality of our outcome the reality of our outcome is that as the set, the state sector has withdrawn and withdrawn and said fine we won't regulate we'll let we'll let money find what it must um we've actually ended up with social outcomes that have not worked for countries and so we we feel that it's time to be more skeptical and say we don't just want a government that de-risks finance because what does de-risking mean it doesn't mean de-risking it simply means a government that absorbs the risk for finance so that finance can make more money and this this issue that you raise of the financialization of even non-financial corporations around the world is exactly part of that the the issue is that you only look at the real sector for what financial return it can bring you that's the shareholder narrative but there's also a social narrative and this narrative that says well you know social economic outcomes are really not as important as financial outcomes surely um if nothing else the climate change reality and covid must have woken us up to the reality that that's just false sonia speaks about blended financing and how these private financing measures will ultimately not produce the kind of development outcomes needed to roll out social and economic infrastructure successfully you know ppes across the world have had a long history of failure um where we've seen that they basically commodify infrastructure and that's the problem with private investment is that it commodifies public infrastructure and it transforms citizens into consumers we know that private investors are concerned with meeting a bottom line or getting a return on investment um their focus is solely on whether the consumer not the citizen is able to pay for for a service and so when you privatize when you convert you know citizens into consumers through privatization of key social infrastructure like water you essentially increase the burden of unpaid social reproductive work on women too who who are essentially you know subsidizing the role um that the state should be playing so there are a number of implications of you know of increased you know commodification of key infrastructure and and i think the lesser two case is a, is a is a prime example just like how terribly <laughs> it can go and how easy it is for it to fall through because the minute you you as a state as a government renege on your duty to provide you know critical infrastructure um you you essentially giving away you giving it all you giving it all to the private sector to solve it for you but the private sector won't do that <laughs> unless it's compelled to so for example you know they're trying to change the section i think it's the regulation 28 of the infrastructure asset class to make infrastructure an asset class and many have 
already argued that that doesn't necessarily compel the private sector to invest uh, or private investors or institutional investors to invest in infrastructure because what they're looking for is a return on investment. So unless you're able as a state to guarantee a, a return on investment, then, uh, then you know, changing that regulation won't do much. <laughs> and so the private sector needs to be compelled to do things or to um, provide what they say they will, but that rarely happens if there isn't an incentive to make a profit. For the Saab used an arsenal of monetary policy instruments to cushion the country's economy from COVID-19-related economic shocks. Local banks are well capitalized despite a rapid increase in bad debts. This is in part due to businesses closing down, the rising unemployment and some corporates being unable to pay salaries. The IMF is predicting, as a result of the COVID-19 crisis, that the world is going to face the greatest depression since the 1930s. And along with that comes a significant recession in low-income countries. The result of these economic challenges and pressures is an increase in debt vulnerability. While the pandemic might have woken us up to the implications of a financialized form of capitalism, it's still quite clear that many policymakers see collaborations between the private and the public sector as the holy grail, least of all in the context of declining fiscal space. So how does all of this play out? So how this all plays out, how this foregrounding of the private sector in a private sector-led infrastructure rollout plays out is in mechanisms like public-private partnerships and blended financing and making infrastructure into an asset class, essentially playing into global capital's interest in increased uh, privatization of, of public services. And as you mentioned, or as I mentioned, um, PPPs in the UK, for example, are being phased out. We've seen critical lack of success in, in PPEs across the globe. So in Lesotho, there was a, a, a hospital that was, the cost overruns were enormous, I think over 100% because of the, just like the lack of governance, just the mess that that was. In the UK, they were officially phased out um, because of their high fiscal risks and, and the resultant costs to the fiscus. I think about like a study or an audit of the private finance initiative, which is what they call the, their PPEs, found that the cost of PPEs had been at least, I think, 40% higher than just relying on, on public funding. And, and, the, and the idea of contingent liability. So one of the reasons why they invest, um, governments invest in PPPs is because, you know, they're considered off-book transactions or, or contingent liabilities. And contingent liabilities have been known to kind of undermine national macroeconomic policy and cause significant economic harm, especially when they become due as we have already seen with ESCOM's debt, um, which is guaranteed by the state. So I think the real question here is how much risk is too much risk and how much risk 
can the government or should the government be taking on on behalf of private investors? I think that's a critical question that we need to think about. Coming back to the issue of financing infrastructure, when there's uh, seemingly very little in the kitty, it does seem that some of the answers are far from straightforward. There are a lot of issues, Ewonga, <laughs> in the provision of infrastructure. There are a lot of things that we need to think about. And I suppose, like, I can only reflect back to you in that question, kind of the deep-seated anger that we all have at the lack of infrastructure, the lack of public services um, at an adequate level. And, and this anger essentially has not been addressed. And I suppose my angle in this is who then should be providing the infrastructure? Who then should be providing these investments? And again, I would foreground the role of, of, of the state in doing that and not in the private sector. The issues of massive global liquidity also accentuate and make worse some of these structural challenges. The type of capital seeking returns is seldom the kind of capital that might allow us to resolve our own challenges. Least of all, where the investment is passive, embedded in index financing that passively attracts investment towards a specifically defined and designed index of either debt instruments or even equity instruments in some instances. From our perspective, I think there are two parts to that. I mean, the first is that clearly, if you see this as um, a global push of liquidity where it's going to try and seek returns, then, in fact, it's very clear that a lot of what is happening has got very little to do with what economists for generations have referred to as fundamentals. So it's not that we're attracting capital as a developing economy. It's not we're not attracting capital because our fundamentals are so sound. What we attract, what what is happening is in fact there's a push element of hungry capital seeking a return. And so the problem is is that there's very little knowledge or understanding of what our issues are as a developing country. You know, there's now an increasing um, phenomenon that I'm sure you're very aware of is this sort of notion of passive investment. Once your country or once your um, your particular sovereign bonds are part of an index, well, then they are passively attracting investment. Um, but because there's very little knowledge about what's happening within the specifics of your country, of course, that means that um, if some if there is a bad news event, then that capital flight, it, it, you know, is, is prone to flight. Um, and of course, what happens is that as this um, debt increases within the economy, it has to be serviced. One of the things that we are very concerned about is that very often debt is not associated with um, investment that is delivering um, economic return. So not even... For the, for the country involved, is it actually delivering financial return? Maybe, maybe not. Is it delivering social return at the very least? And therefore, is there a strategy within that economy that says, we've attracted this capital, it comes at a cost, how are we going to service it? That, I guess, is the perennial question. At what cost does this capital come by way of debt service costs? As Dr. Penelope Hawkins told us, sometimes the multipliers of initial waves of investment are overstated, with public-private partnerships and the impact of these partnerships often overstated at great cost. Sonia believes the state should be at the forefront of funding infrastructure and providing basic services, 
instead of uh, the private sector, which turns citizens into consumers based on maximizing the bottom line instead of ensuring people get access to public goods and their constitutional rights? I think the need is as basic as it gets. So stuff like roads, I mean, we can't run away from the fact that there are basic infrastructure developments that we need, not necessarily to improve economic outcomes or GDP, not necessarily to facilitate the movement of goods or or business, but for the basic fact that they simply don't exist. (laughs) And so when you go to rural areas where there is no water, I think that's where we should be starting. And I think often when we have these conversations about about infrastructure development and the role of infrastructure, we often kind of overlook kind of the basic, the the most basic infrastructure needs that have not been addressed in 20 years. Penelope speaks about how central banks can play a bigger role in tackling climate change and uh, also ensuring sustainable development. Just with regard to the role of the central bank, I think, you know, this this has been a debate that I think, again, is somewhat um, falsely generated. This idea that somehow you need for a central bank to be independent, they really should only worry about inflation. And I think that is really a false false narrative. Um, A central bank is part of the mechanism by which a strategic um, and sound public sector can actually assist in the structural transformation and development of an economy. And so to simply say, well, because they're independent, they can only look at this thing and this thing very narrowly, I think is foolish. Um, The reality is that for a developing economy in Africa to grow from where it is to something that is a vibrant, domestically stimulated economy that in fact is tackling issues of climate change and gender and dealing with the pandemic and so on, actually we need all the mechanisms that we have at our disposal. And to that point, I mean, maybe I can just also say, I mean, I think that for us, I mean, one of the roles that the central bank should be really leading in now is actually considering how it can actually play a role in climate. I mean, for instance, we have seen um, the Chinese central bank now making very strong moves in terms of um, providing, um, seeing green investments as actually valid securities. And we're going to see increasingly um, some central banks playing a role in saying, well, actually certain securities that are dirty or brown um, are going to actually carry an additional disincentive tax. And I think these are the kinds of things that I think, you know, we would want central banks more and more to be proactive in if we're going to move to um, a green solution in Africa. What about taxes on hot money or broadly capital flows to mitigate the adverse impact of what Dr. Hawkins is calling hungry money? For example, in Brazil, they imposed a, a financial a financial tax based exactly, as you say, on maturity. So when um, there was short-term issuance um, for very short papers, then, for example, a financial tax would be imposed on flows associated with that of maybe as high as perhaps 25 or 30%. But if it was a much longer maturity of, say, 
five years or 10 years, that would drop to 6%. So, I mean, I think that there are ways in which one can think about capital controls. Countries have actually employed them, like Brazil. They're not the only ones. Um, but the point there is to realize that the way flows need to be seen is that if they are coming in, particularly if you buy into the narrative of push factors, where it's hungry capital seeking returns, then you have to accept that the time to tax them is when they come in, because there's also going to be an outflow. You can guarantee the outflow. You just don't know the timing. And the, the, the issue from our perspective is that this narrative that says capital controls can only be employed under times of crisis um, tends to be problematic because the reality of, is if there is nothing in place at the time that you start talking about capital controls, the crisis has already happened and it's trying to shut the door after the horse is bolted. So we think that capital controls should be part of the natural narrative of managing um, this, this porous world in which we live, in which global finance has tremendous power. And the mechanisms ought to be there to consider not only dealing with outflowing capital, but inflowing capital. And it should be something that's part of our day-to-day -day narrative. And if one could in fact find a mechanism whereby more developing countries could in unison kind of adopt that approach, even although they would not necessarily all be applying the capital controls at once, then there would actually be um, far more ability to actually keep it within the arsenal um, of the central bank. Thank you once again for tuning in to the Apport podcast and do join us once again for our next episode in our series on rethinking African development. It's time to be more skeptical. What does de-risking mean? It means, as Penelope says, a government that absorbs risk for global finance. While the catchphrases may suggest an alignment of interest between big money and the general public, it's clear that this isn't always the case. Till we meet again. Derrière vous, il suscite des débats passionnés depuis son adoption en 1900.